this week in cyberspace. That's right. Well, we've all seen the distressing images of Israeli and Palestinian civilians being attacked in the current conflict in the Middle East. Places of refuge like hospitals have been bombed, food, water, electricity, fuel and essential medical supplies have been cut off. The attacks by both sides are pretty much indefensible. But now people living in the contested Gaza Strip, a place that has been called the world's largest open-air prison, have had their telecommunications infrastructure targeted and their internet connectivity seriously limited. The technological dimensions of this conflict have motivated many groups to call for both a physical and digital ceasefire. Access Now is one of those groups and its CEO, Brett Solomon, joins us now. How are you going, Brett? I'm good. Yeah. I'm fine. <laughs> In the midst of the maelstrom, <laughs> yes. we breathe. We breathe, mm. yes. Um, no, I'm really glad that we're talking this week and this week in cyberspace on this issue because... You know, we've talked a lot over the podcast about how conflict is so now intertwined with digital conflict, how warfare is defined by cyber warfare. And we can see in this conflict that it's no different. In fact, probably worse as well. You know, you know how like that expression about information warfare, you know, warfare, that truth and is kind of the first victim of war and that the competing parties are trying to control the information ecosystem. It's now on steroids. Mm, can you just start by painting us a picture of what the digital space was like in this conflict zone um, yeah. before October the 7th because, you know, there's been a long history of occupation yeah, there. It's true and, and Access Now has been trying to document some of that and also communicate some of the, um, you know, the human rights breaches and abuses, the ingrained human rights breaches that have um, taken place in the Gaza Strip and in the West Bank. Um, and, you know, when you look at things like the speed of the internet, I mean, just, you know, um, there's been reports that this, the sort of the current speed prior to this flare-up or this conflict, and um, was it 2G? Oh, right. You know, and the, rest of, and the rest of the world's on 5G. But there's, yeah. but there's many other elements to it as well. And I think when you think about a population that's, you know, confined particularly in the Gaza Strip in a very small space where its connectivity is reliant upon fibre-optic cables that come in from Israel then you can see the dependence, like the dependence on food and water and electricity and all the things that have been cut, um, how that kind of defines what a pre-October 7th um, Gaza Strip looked like. And, you know, we've also um, done a number of reports that have tried to identify, um, you know, where is there things like bias on platforms? So, for instance, why is it that in this last round of protests around the Al-Aqsa, which we talked about now in this week in, in cyberspace, where you know the whole hashtag was removed by Meta because they thought it was in inverted commas like you know a terrorist group, and it was actually the name of a mosque and a very important mosque as well. So when you had Palestinians who were you know flagging, expressing their views and their opinions and using that hashtag and the whole hashtag was taken offline, you can see how issues around censorship and control come into play. And I think that's the background um, that we're operating within. So, so you know, I mean, 
you can cut off the cables mm. going into Gaza from Israel. But what about the platforms? What are what what what's their yeah. responsibility? Like, what is X's responsibility? Because yeah. I think there's been a few kind of a bit of misinformation. Yeah. Well, the whole. The whole platform, um, the whole digital sphere is full of disinformation and also, you know, um, deep fakes as well where you actually, something looks incredibly real but in fact it's incredibly fake, you know, it's being used. And, And one of the things, of course, is with artificial intelligence, and we've talked about this as well now, about generative AI where something looks seamlessly real where you've, you know, taken the voice of a person um, and just replicate it to say whatever you whatever you want it to say. So I think the platforms have a huge amount of responsibility. I mean, one of the things that we've called for, um, you know, prior to this has been that there needs to be equal content moderation both in Hebrew and in, and in Arabic. And that hasn't been the case. You know, increasingly platforms are using artificial intelligence to be able to, you know, get rid of content immediately, um, but without any human oversight. And things like that, which become incredibly problematic, particularly in a contested space where the online environment is as important as the offline environment, particularly when a conflict like this is taking place. Yeah, because people need to communicate. They need to know where is a safe space to go. They need to organise online. I mean, there's so much that the internet can facilitate in the civil space in the midst of a crisis like this. But I think there's a lot of, with the disinformation flourishing and incitement to violence mm. flourishing as well, yeah. and and it's been kind of dismissed as, quote, unavoidable technical failures. <laughs> what are those unavoidable technical failures? Oh, whoops, I think, a bomb yeah. just hit that tower. Yeah, well, I mean, now, just to, like, put it into context, and it's really good that you raise it because... You know, as you said, Gaza's been identified as a kind of open-air prison um, for, you know, two million people. Um, and so when something like this happens, and I'm not underplaying as well the crisis that has happened for the Israelis as well, I think it's important that we understand this both in terms of human rights law and international humanitarian frameworks, which apply equally to all sides. But when you have a population that's being bombed from above and a million people being ordered or kind of, you know, strongly advised to move from north to south, people need to know where are the emergency services and how do you get in contact with them. They need to be able to contact their loved ones and their friends and their families and say, are you okay, right? Can you imagine the experience of no phone, no data, no SMS, no mobile, no fixed line. Like that's the experience that people within Gaza um, are, you know, that's the reality. And I think that's one of the reasons why many groups have called for a digital ceasefire because a digital ceasefire is basically saying that humanita- that civilian infrastructure is not military infrastructure. Civilian infrastructure needs to be protected at all costs. And there, you know, we need to have an open, secure, available internet for a population that's experiencing a humanitarian crisis. Do you think that, you know, destroying civilian infrastructure could be seen as a war crime? So um, I think that, um, I mean, the short answer is yes. Uh, I, I think that, you know, the whole concept of a war crime, just to put it into context, is a is a very 
it's a it's a legal term which has a lot of precedent and definition and jurisprudence on it. So, um, um, so you know, for me, just to say it's a war crime is, you know, you you would want to make sure that you have proper legal juri- like understanding to be able to use that term. Um, but 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 I would but many um, jurists are saying yes that that is the case, and I think that when we think about humanitarian law, which are really the laws of war, we need to update them. We need to understand them in a context of um, of digital today. And so where, you know, the radio tower is the thing that enables not just people's access to information, but to everything, to education, to healthcare, to access to emergency services, all of those things, you know, it's very clear that particularly when it's intentional, and where there's collective punishment, that these are elements that would point in that direction for sure. So Access Now, along with a bunch of other organisations, have come up with the Declaration of Principles for Content and Platform Governance in Times of Crisis. There's a mouthful. (laughs) Yeah, that's a big mouthful, with guidelines for really centering human rights before, during and after a crisis. Yeah. I mean, how effective is this declaration in this particular situation? Well, it's extremely important because, you know, you have obligations that the tech sector has in times of peace, and then you have an elevated set of expectations and duties that the tech sector has in times of conflict. And so, you know, it's clear that when you're talking about content which is disinformation or where content is an incitement to ge- to hate or indeed in incitement to genocide then it puts an additional obligation on the platform and as you say it's in the three stages it's in the lead up to the conflict it's in the conflict itself and then of course when you know in the peace building and stabilization period um, and you know we've we wrote that declaration specifically for moments like this Tell us a bit about what the digital elements are of the current conflict, you know, in the Middle East and what what impacts are they having? Yeah. I mean, we need a whole day for this one. But, you know, (laughs) we've talked a little bit about about disinformation Mm. and a little bit about... Um, you know, deep fakes. I should just um, mention also that between October the 7th and 18th, the Arab Centre for the Advancement of Social Media documented over 103,000 instances of hate speech and or incitement in Hebrew on X. On X, yeah. Well, And other platforms well, too, yeah. Yeah, I mean, just, you know, parenthetically, one of the reasons why... Um, we had been so concerned for many years about, I mean, for this last year about Elon Musk's takeover of, of Twitter slash X, is it for exactly this reason? Because Twitter used to have a very good framework. We used to have very good relationships with them on, you know, trusted partners that were able to alert X to say, like, this doesn't mean that, that needs to come off because that's a dog whistle to attack that particular ethnic group in whatever, you know, uh, location. Um, that has, we've lost all of that. And so the reason why Hamla, which is the group that did that report, one of the reasons why they're focusing on X is because it, the reality is, is that's where a lot of the hates, hatred is happening and it's happening in an uncontrolled and, and ungoverned manner. So there's, so there's issues around that. But one of the, another element that we didn't really talk, we haven't really talked about is, is the cyber attack. Right. Yeah. So the cyber attack, the cyber warfare element of warfare, which is 
you know, there's elements of disinformation, etc. But there are also technical attacks. So, you know, what happens and what we saw both, I think, with Ukraine, where the world kind of woke up to this was before you send in the ca- the tanks, you send in the code, you know, and you're trying to dismantle the electricity grid, you're trying to hack the water provision system, you're trying to, um, you know, send malware and spyware onto the devices of individuals. Like, this whole digital element to warfare is, this cyber element to warfare is, is you know, very concerning because particularly, you know, if one side is offline as well, yeah. you know, is unable to... If one to, side's on 3G or 2G. And exactly, exactly. Like there's an asymmetry there. Mm. Um, so that's another element. So, and I think also when you think about things like, um, you know, disinf- I mean, sorry, like doxing, for example, like... You know, this is another example of where the digital environment is being used, where people's, you know, peace activists or human rights defenders or people who are trying to actually document human rights abuses, like in the context of conflict, where those individuals themselves are becoming unsafe, where their identity is revealed, where their home address is revealed, all of the stuff that we've talked about before. Like, this is another element of the digital component of warfare and why. Many groups are saying, hey, like, whilst we deal with this humanitarian crisis, we need to address at its core the digital elements that are just sort of flying by, having real-world consequences, but without the attention that's needed. So Access Now is also joined with uh, 70 other organisations um, to call for a digital ceasefire. How does that, how does that actually work? <laughs> <laughs> so... You know, it's interesting. There are many different players in a ceasefire, right? So you've got the state actors, you've got the non-state actors. In the digital world, you then have the tech companies, you have the regulators, you have the internet service providers, you have the users. So it all becomes, you know, their proxies as well. So it becomes much more complex. Um, but in our call for a digital ceasefire, we say to the to all parties what is required, you know, in terms of like the re- protection of humanitarian, uh, um, respect for humanitarian law. That means things like, you know, no bombing of communication towers, for instance. Civilian it means, infrastructure. It means protection, it means reconnection of um, fiber opt- optic cables. It means proper management by the tech companies in terms of the content that's passing through, um, through, through their networks. Uh, it means that in the international community, which is often, you know, involved in um, in trying to develop to sort of um, secure a, a ceasefire, that those parties actually have digital elements when the negotiations um, fall into place. So there's many different elements to it. It's also very new as well. We're still working out exactly what that means. Um, so stay tuned. Just finally, what is the state of the connectivity in the Gaza Strip right now? Yeah. Good. So, I mean, one of the things that's really difficult, and I'm sorry that, you know, I sort of give you round, somewhat roundabout answers, is that we don't actually know. And the reason is because the measurement community that's responsible for measuring that sort of, you know, it's there to measure where there is a drop in connectivity and sort of when there's a throttling and like how long does it take for connectivity to return. It's very, very piecemeal. Um, but there are different reports and at different times as well and in different regions. But I would say as a general rule, 
it's way less than 50% of normal connectivity. And normal, as we've identified before, is not normal. (laughs) No, Um, these are not normal times. Very, very very slow at best and non-existent, in particularly uh, in contested areas. All right. Well, good luck with your mission to get that connectivity back (laughs) up to speed. Thanks so much, and I'll see you next week. All right.